Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep into Civility, a new collaboration platform I've launched with our guest, Nicholas Davis. But first, our wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch campaigner, Samantha Floriani, and the Australian's tech editor, David Swan. Now, we've got a really special panel today and not our normal panel. Um, Dan from Guardian is on his way, I believe, to London. And Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch had a baby about 24 hours ago, um, which wasn't scheduled till after this edition of um, Burning Platforms, but we thought show must go on. And so her, um, I don't know if we call you um, Lizzie's deputy or her worker bee, um, <laughs> Samantha Floriani is stepping in after a big week, um, giving them hell over PR guy, which we'll talk about very soon. So g'day, Sam, and thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. And the great David Swan, the Good News Limited journalist, um, the Australian's technology editor, David, thanks for joining us as well. Thanks for having me. Our special guest, is my friend Nick Davis, who I think is joining us from the airport. Um, he's about to fly off to London, maybe to meet up with Dan as well. And just to add to the de- degree of difficulty um, of today's burning platforms, which I'm trying to sort of navigate, even as we speak, including turning off the waiting room so we don't hold anyone else out, is we're also going to run this as a little bit of... Um, a test run of these new engagement tools that Nick and I launched um, earlier this week called Civility. So before we get into the discussion, it's really just tools to make the experience of being um, in a live internet event a bit less like watching bad TV. So what we're going to ask you all to do at the start is Nick is either going to put in chat a link And I'm going to put on the screen very quickly a QR code. And if before we get into this discussion, you guys are happy just to try to get yourself into what we're calling the civility engagement platform, which is really just a repurpose of Menti with a few big ideas behind it, um, that'd be great. We'll know you're in when um, the heart starts going. Um, So either... There's two people in. Um, and what we're going to do with that is during the course of the discussion, when we're, when we're talking about different issues, we're going to get your feedback so you're not just there trying to get heard in the chat. Um, now, g'day, Nick, from the airport. You're better at driving people through this part of the process than me. Um, if it's not making sense, people just put it in the chat because it looks to me like I've only got two people that have actually got in. I know that Samantha's one of them at the moment. But all you need to do is flag in. And what the idea is then either on a second screen on your computer or on a mobile phone, if you want to do it with the QR code, there's going to be some screens that we go through as we're discussing to get some feedback with you on some of the stories. So it's not going to be the whole show. It's not there to take over the event. So we can leave that there and hopefully a few more people find their way in. Nick, am I needing to give better instructions than that, do you reckon? And welcome to uh, this platform. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Great to meet many of you, see a number of you again. Um, I'm, have a cel- I'm having a celebratory beer for this platform, but also for getting through airport security and check-in for my first international trip in 18 months. And, um, yeah, as Pete said, if you click on that, that link in the, uh, in the chat, it's probably the easiest for most of you. If you'd like to do things on your phone, feel free to use the, the QR code. 
um, and you'll see the burning platform screen um, come up. There'll be a little heart at the bottom. If you click that heart, that just lets us know how many of you have joined the platform. And that's awesome. Just gets a little bit of interaction. But also the big part, as Peter will probably talk about, the big, the big kind of aspect of being able to use these tools is we, we're constantly gathering really interesting qualitative data from conversations like this that we can share back to the community and use to um, uh, build this collective sense of where we want to go. Yeah, thanks, Nick. And yeah, the, the, the big picture will be in the second half. We're going to go through our normal process of um, going through a bit of the week in news. Everyone's jumping in now. That's fantastic. I reckon this makes really, really bad content for a podcast as well. But so let's get into the discussion for this week. Um, as I said, Sam has been hitting it all over the park Um I guess in defence of PR guy, Sam, but um, the, the background of this is that um, Twitter's been ordered by the federal court to reveal the identity of an anonymous Twitter account by the name of PR guy, who I think is a left-wing booster for Dan Andrews, who came to light during the live um, lockdown press conferences. The case against PR guy is being driven by a right-wing influencer by the name of Abi Yemeni, um, who's not averse to a bit of trolling himself. So I guess it's a question of anonymity. Um, Sam, you've got strong views. Tell us what you've been saying and how it's gone down. I've got strong views. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I guess to start off with, I'm not necessarily defending PR guy in particular. I feel like I need to like, clarify that. Um, I'm very invested in defending the right to anonymity online. Um, it is fundamental to our privacy, to freedom of speech, um, to democratic participation, and also to uh, safety for a lot of people online. So, you know, this, this case is happening within a broader context of like a really heated debate about the merit of online anonymity and about how we want to manage I guess uh, internet policy more broadly how we want to manage how we interact with each other um, and this question of anonymity keeps coming up and so last year people might remember um, there were a couple of pro proposals that came out about online anonymity. One of them was a suggestion that we should provide 100 points of ID to have a social media account. Um, another one was the draft uh, so-called anti-trolling bill, which funnily enough is also about defamation, which is kind of what sparked has sparked all of this. Um, and that would have required social media companies to collect additional personal information as well to be able to unmask anonymous users. So these debates are live and they are, um, you know, I think they stand to have quite a fundamental impact on how we do interact online. Um, I think something that's important to highlight is that there is this kind of very pervasive assumption that anonymity causes bullying and abuse and defamation online um, and that you know anonymity is something that the bad guys use you know to hide behind and to be able to get away with bad behavior and I think it's really worth like really critically thinking about that and questioning that assumption because plenty of people use anonymity online all the time for like entirely legitimate reasons there's a huge list um, and it's not there's not a small minority right and one of the things I think is, is important to think about is that we don't have evidence to suggest that removing anonymity would necessarily, by default, improve the quality of public debate or reduce um, harassment and abuse online. But what we do know on the flip side is that removing anonymity would bring up all kinds of other 
really challenging issues. Just on that, like, how can you prove something that hasn't occurred? So you're saying we haven't got evidence to show that um, getting rid of anonymity would lead to better outcomes. What's the basis of that? Well, I think if we look at something like Facebook is a really prime example where they've got a real names policy. Uh, anyone who's on Facebook would would know that um, plenty of people are just as willing to be awful online with their, you know, their their face and their real name right there. So I think that's a that's a pretty like decent example to show that if we just force people to use their real names, it wouldn't necessarily curb bad behavior. The other example that I think is really interesting is, um, and I think Lizzie has spoken about this before in another session, um, is in South Korea. So a couple of years ago, they passed legislation that required South Koreans to provide their national identification number to be able to uh, post on uh, popular websites. And that was done on the basis of wanting to crack down on online abuse and also um, fears around misinformation. And then they did studies on it afterwards to sort of see how it went. And they didn't find any like significant reduction in online abuse, nor did it suggest that it minimized um, the spread of misinformation either. Um, And that law ended up getting struck down by their constitutional court saying that it um, had detrimental impacts on their democracy and it, it instilled a fear in their citizens to post things that were critical of people in power. So I think those two examples are pretty compelling. Dave, where do you um, fit when it comes to anonymity online as a byline journalist? Yeah, and it's interesting. We were talking a little bit just um, pre-show about how toxic some of these um, followers are uh, online. I know, for example, I wrote about Friendly Geordies a year ago or so when it was the news media bargaining code um, stuff was all sort of up in the air and that got pretty contentious. And he sicked his um, YouTube followers onto me and it was sort of death threats and just this disgusting stuff coming through for about a, a week. I'm thankful that, you know, I didn't have it as bad as, as others have. But, you know, it's when you're putting your own name out there as a as journalist, you're putting yourself out there to, to be attacked when people disagree with you. And the Friendly Geordie stuff is super relevant because this week there was a, a federal court decision where, you know, John Barillaro took on both Friendly Geordies and um, Google, which which operates YouTube, and and won. And the, the judge you know, absolutely lambasted Google and said, and Google withdrew its defences by the end and said that, um, you know, it just had no leg to stand on when it came to this stuff. Um, Friendly Geordies at least removed his videos about Barilaro from YouTube and then re-uploaded them without the defamatory content and issued an apology as well. Um, Google just did nothing leaving all this content on its platform and didn't apologise. And now it's been uh, successfully sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, this case this week proved that, you know, a couple of things. One, that Google does have responsibility for defamatory content on its platform, but also that, you know, Friendly Geordies, um, he's not anonymous. Um, he, um, you know, his name's out there. It's Jordan Shanks. He doesn't try to be anonymous. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that people are still toxic and uh, can be terrible humans, even when they're putting their face and their name to things online. So I think, you know, and I'd agree that anonymity doesn't, it only goes so far really when it comes to toxic behaviour online. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll bring Nick in. I, I think one of the ideas behind what we are thinking around building a civic space for digital life is that you would register as a as a citizen. Um, I think that different platforms have different rules. Um, I'm interested, Nick, in your your insights on the the pros and cons of anonymity, and then we might go back to Sam and go to the audience. Sure. I mean, it goes to a couple of things here. Um, one is proportionality, right? That's if, you, if, you're, if you're proposing blanket roles for all social media platforms, you really need to be careful about what is in the general public interest and how that plays into the norms of society and those big picture aspects. And, and too often in Australian lawmaking and policymaking, we approach um, quite a specific complex problem with really broad ranging blunt tools um, that are first in the world often and have terrible, in my view, as someone who studies this policymaking work, um, has have terrible influence um, overseas as well. So influencing other jurisdictions to copy poorly drafted and poorly thought through laws is, is actually something that we really need to be careful of as, um, as, as the world's testbed for technologies and tech policy. Um, the second thing is, I think both David and Sam have made this point, um, it really comes down to the purpose of the platform as well, right? So, uh, you know, if you're talking about the role that YouTube plays versus Facebook versus Twitter, they they have different um, terms of service and different uh, rules around uh, conduct and engagement. Um, and they should really be held to account to their own tools and their own uh, codes of conduct, as well as to kind of general principles of, of what we consider good online behaviour. It doesn't mean that we need to therefore remove anonymity altogether. For something like the work that you and I are doing, which is really around gathering interesting qualitative data around um, how the public is viewing key issues, um, key social good issues, uh, I think there's a good case to be made that we want people to be their authentic selves and we want to be able to feel like people are sharing part of their identity as well. Um, but that's just because that's that particular purpose of the platform. And I would never presume to say that the internet should um, all consist of those um, those kinds of aspects. And just a personal note, I, I, I ran a bulletin board system, a BSB system in the early 90s in Australia out of a, a house in Hornsby. And um, I keep on going back in my mind to those early days of the internet and the, the kind of joyous engagement that can become by people being truly like-minded and sharing the quality of their ideas and not having to be tied to their offline identities. Um, I know that's not the case for a lot of Twitter trolls <laughs> uh, who are anonymous out there, but I do think we need to keep that diversity of um, engagement alive. So why don't we try our lovely civility tool? If people want to go um, back into the um, the link or the app on their phone, two questions. Twitter should be forced to reveal PR guy's identity. Do you strongly agree or strongly disagree? And likewise on YouTube should be liable for friendly Geordie's videos. Just jump in there we can, and then we'll um, have a look at what people are, are saying um, on the share screen. Sam, while people are doing that, I must say you have suffered for your art. You were telling me that you've been absolutely trolled for um, protecting the trolls this week. Yeah, it's. I find it quite entertaining for the most part. Like, obviously, it's it's terrible, and I don't want to like underestimate that um, the kind of harm that online trolling can can cause. Like, that's a, it's a really it is a it is a huge issue, and it does cause a lot of people um, tremendous distress and real real life consequences. But it has been entertaining to me to be publicly defending anonymity and then to be trolled by anonymous <laughs> accounts is like, it's just quite, it's quite funny, really. Um, it's not enough to deter me because I fundamentally believe that it's really important for, for all kinds of reasons, but yeah, it's certainly been um, a real time. 
Well, having a look, we've had a few of you jumping in and using the um, civility feedback loop, but as a group, we are, we are disagreeing with the proposition that Twitter should be forced to reveal PR guys' identity. So you've won that argument there, Sam. <laughs> um, but we are saying that a majority of us are saying YouTube should be up for um, the Friendly Geordie's video and that impact. And I think that's one that's going to wash for you through for a while. Platform responsibility is an ongoing conversation. Um, but, you know, this is one of the few times that um, courts have gone to this level. Um, mm -hmm. There's also interesting debate there, Dave, just about whether or not Google's going to bother to pay up or just say, bugger you. There's also just, hey, just to jump in yeah, there, yeah. John make a good point in the chat there that, that there's a strong likelihood that Twitter don't know who PR guy is. And, and, it, and it raises another question of how far the law should be willing to go or, or platforms should be required to go to actually unmask identities. Um, because, you know, if, if PR guy is using an onion router and lots of different um, kind of VPN services to hide identity consistently, Twitter may never be able to find out who's tweeting from that account. But on the other hand, if they are forced to do a forensic examination of all the login details and all that kind of stuff, that's actually pretty onerous as well. So it does go to this question of, you know, thinking about the broader tech ecosystem, what kind of requirements and responsibilities do these, you know, throwaway lines like should be forced to reveal identity? What do we mean by that? Um, in terms of the requirements we're putting on ourselves and uh, the companies that, that provide their services. Indeed. So let's move on. Thanks for that, Nick. Um, so federal election life is different, isn't it? Under an Albanese government, the, the sky is clearer. We wake up, there's less division. Errol Goulden kicks goals from the sideline to defeat the reigning premiers. So life is good under Albanese. But what is it like for tech and what should the government be doing straight off the bat. I think one of the interesting things has been in the new shadow, or not the shadow anymore, God, the new cabinet, um, one of the guys that was most interested in digital space, Tim Watts, has been moved out of that area. Um, it seems to me the power's resting between Michelle Rowlands in communications, Mark Dreyfus, an attorney general, who's obviously got carriage of both privacy and some of the um, other elements of the um, old ACCC package. So, Guys, where do we think the priorities are? And again, I'm going to get our snazzy little toolkit up again and do a bit of a prioritisation exercise in a sec. But David, what do you think is going to be straight off the bat when we get into, into this Albanese government and tech? I think you missed a big name there, Pete, and that's Ed Husey. I think he mm. has been a champion of the local tech space, even in opposition. And yep. for you know, knowing him for almost a decade, very real in terms of going to events going to co-working spaces being a real um champion of the the more the smaller end of town so like the atlassians before they got to thousands of employees in the canvas of the world um he just gets it and i think that having him right at the top in this new elbow world that we're going to be in will be really helpful he's going to be a strong voice um i'm expecting it to be a little bit like the turnbull um ideas boom for people that are old enough to remember the sort of um, innovation agenda that Turnbull had when he came in, you could argue, I mean... A black skibby government. Yeah, just just one that wants to grapple with these issues and, and champion the tech industry in a way that the Morrison government never really did. Um, I think the biggest thing that that did was actually just shine a light on tech companies as somewhere that place, that people should be interested in working rather than the, the banks and the old world. Um, you know, shining a light just, you know, brings everybody in. And I think the biggest issue that they'll have to tackle from day one is, is talent. Um, that's sort of the, 
recurring theme of every interview I do with, with CEOs and execs in tech companies now is just that they're struggling to retain and, and find good uh, people. And we have a shortage in Australia at the moment. So I think with the borders being what they have been with COVID, I think they're going to have to make some visa changes and some make migration and skilled migration easier. Um, so talent, I expect to be sort of the number one thing that, that Fusik and, and his colleagues will have to, to grapple with. Thinking about tech for a burning platform audience, I didn't actually put talent on the top of the list. And um, I, th- I think it is interesting just your insights covering tech in general. Um, I do see this government as being one tech as opportunity, tech as growth. For all its faults, there was a sense in the Morrison government that there were parts of the, the, the tech impacts that needed to be managed and dealt with. Um, I wonder if there will be that same passion within the Labor government if that's their their front their front end. Um, I think particularly a big test is going to be what happens with privacy law reform, which is yeah. you know, there's, a, there's a paper in front of the AG and obviously also Ed Santos' call for a moratorium on facial recognition, which is sitting on the same Attorney General's desk. There's a few things sort of gathering dust there. For those that are filling it out, thank you. We're just asking people what their priorities are on issues at the moment. Privacy law reform seems to be the number one. Sam, you you, you were um, very keen to put national security in the mix because that's another area that um, government control and in use of our data has just been spiralling over the last decade. Yeah, I mean, I I do not foresee um, Labor jumping into that uh, fight straight away. I cannot imagine them um, wanting to go near that. I'm so stoked to see privacy law reform up the top there. That <laughs> warms my heart. Um, if this crew but- wasn't putting that at number one, there is <laughs> no crew in the world that will though. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Um, something that has been interesting to me as well about this is um, Claire O'Neill. So she is the Minister for Cybersecurity, which is new. We haven't had a portfolio for cybersecurity before. Um, she's also the Minister of Home Affairs. I'm really interested in and would love to see a bit of a separation of um, how we think about cybersecurity and um, sort of separating that out from surveillance and policing and whatnot. So, I, you know, I, it's, it's still a little bit worrying to me that they're still under the same person, but it will be interesting to see how she goes in that space. I've also read a bit of reporting that on that kind of tech skills front, um, some people talking about how because, you know, by grace of having a woman in that role, maybe will it will encourage some more diversity in the cybersecurity space. I'm deeply sceptical of, of the idea of, you know, by grace of having um, a woman in a position of power that it necessarily does um, lead to, to better outcomes for women or to, to by, def- by default, encourage more diversity. But it, would, it will be interesting to watch. Nick, if you're um, president of the world, or at least Australia, where are you starting on all this? I know you're working closely with Ed on the facial recognition work. Yeah, I think look, the privacy law reform aspect would still be also be my number one on this. It's uh, in, in fact, I'd be looking at, at clarifying and establishing a lot more of, from a human rights perspective, about what Australians' rights are in the broad sweep of legislation that affects us um, in that virtual space, and indeed, increasingly in the real world as a result of our engagement with devices and tech. Um, So that'd be my number one. I think um, it's interesting, uh, there's a deliberate phrasing there on on facial recognition moratorium, but I think that the the direction we really should be going in that area, and and I I think it is is urgent, um, is not so much a binary banning 
Um, there is some really clear restrictions that need to be made there on law, for law enforcement uses, for surveillance, for live and routine use of facial recognition. And we really need to pay attention to the vulnerabilities that are created um, in that space for different people. Um, but I, I actually think we, we also really want to be nuanced about how we um, put a, a, a series of, of essentially bills and consequential and, uh, amendments around facial recognition together. I don't think it's um, it's going down the route of San Francisco and all, it's not a, like, let's just ban in every circumstance. Uh, and, and maybe I've been captured by the AFP, Sam and, and David and others, um, because I've been speaking to them a lot recently about their use of facial recognition. Um, but I do I do see that we really we really need to come become a really practical and realistic approach to that that is absolutely clear about how we protect the public and uphold those rights, including, by the way, creating a new right um, for explanatory and explanations for decision made um, in systems online on behalf of Australians. I really, I'm really passionate um, about that. And then I think the, one of the questions, I think Sam and David are right in terms of saying, I don't think the new government's going to jump into the, the security, um, so, uh, kind of national security side of things. But I would be disappointed if over the next couple of terms that we didn't have a review of some of those terribly, terribly drafted laws um, that, that are um, undermining our rights in a systematic way. Thanks, Nick. Um, David, your um, story that you were going to bring to the table was the um, demise or the resignation, at least, of Sheryl Sandberg, who um, has been both the guru in Google and Facebook. What's going on and what happens to the company formerly known as Facebook? And while you're doing that, we'll give people a pretty binary choice if they go into the app about whether Sheryl Sandberg's a visionary or a villain. <laughs> I thought we were going for nuance here, aren't we? Um, <laughs> yeah. She leaves behind a very complicated legacy at Facebook. So she was there for over a decade and has really been the person. So she's been Mark Zuckerberg's sort of right-hand woman, I suppose, in terms of serving as chief operating officer. And Mark said, um, sort of articulated that she's done all the things that he didn't want to do in terms of often fronting up to, to Senate hearings and Congress hearings in the U.S., and in terms of just scaling up this business, um, Mark's obviously been the face of, of Facebook, for better or worse, and I'd argue probably mostly worse in terms of just what this company has become now. And it's quite clear, um, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the issues that the company is, is grappling with at such an existential level. So she is tied to that. And I think um, it'll be more Mark Zuckerberg's company now more than ever because they're not really going to replace her in the chief operating officer role. It's just going to be Mark is sort of stepping into this vacuum that, that she's leaving. And I thought he couldn't get any more powerful than he already is. I mean, he has the majority of voting rights in terms of the company. So at the board level, you actually wouldn't be able to remove Mark Zuckerberg from his role because he has the majority of voting uh, rights in terms of the, the chairs. Um, and now he's even more powerful because he's not going to replace um, Cheryl. And the only other thing I'd say is she's a polarizing figure because she wrote a, a very famous book, Lean In, which has been empowering and, and um, you know, meant a lot to um, a lot of women in particular out there. Um, I'm just a proponent in general of um, just having good people inside the tent. Um, and I think she was, you know, if, if you strip away what what Facebook has become which is you know a very polarizing and in some ways evil company she I think in, in my categorization is one of the good ones um and if you have give more power to, to the likes of Zuckerberg I, I just don't think that's a, a good thing so it's a very complicated legacy um but you know it's it's sad when someone I think that still has a lot of um moral um fortitude leaves the company I think that can't be a good thing Sam <laughs> 
you can see my face. Um, <laughs> I am not a fan of Sheryl Sandberg at all. It's interesting, right? So she's been talking about how she wants to move into doing more philanthropy and how she wants to carve out more space to do more for women, kind of coming back to my previous point about being deeply skeptical about, you know, just by the grace of having a woman in position of power does not necessarily lead to good outcomes for women. I just, so Sandberg like obviously came from Google and then in, into Facebook. And I think came with her to a lot of ideas around how to data mine at scale. Like she has presided over some of the worst decisions and cover-ups and violations of human rights that Facebook has been tangled up with. And I, I just, I, I deeply resent this idea of her now tapping out me like, and now I'm going to turn to philanthropy. Like there is no redemption arc for you, Cheryl. You cannot come back from this. Um, the other thing that I would say is that lean in the book that she wrote. I mean, I think it was extremely detrimental to ideas of feminism. Like it's, it's like the girl boss corporate feminism manifesto. And at least from my perspective, um, when it comes to, to feminism and how we want to approach applying feminism to technology in particular, I, I, I think it was pretty, um, pretty abhorrent. Um, Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote the, the Age of Surveillance Capitalism, described Sheryl Sandberg as the typhoid Mary of surveillance capitalism. So I just, yeah, I think we should be deeply, deeply skeptical of um, Sheryl Sandberg. But I am curious to see what happens now um, with Facebook now that she's, she's out of there. One, one question that strikes really one. <laughs> one question that strikes me, guys, and is whether it's about individuals or systems like tech is all built on great individuals changing the world or great, you know, evil geniuses. Uh, is that, is that how it works? I might start with Nick on this, given that he's worked with, and, and I haven't introduced Nick properly. Nick, Nick, I've got to know since he's returned to Australia from over a decade at the world economic forum, where he worked with lots of evil geniuses in lots of different ways, but is it, is it a great man in history or a great woman in history, how we should be thinking about Facebook, Nick? No, not at all. Um, I think as much as the, yeah, I love the metaphor and image of the typhoid Mary, but I, I also think we need to be, just be careful too much uh, about um, even giving Mark um, too much of a kind of that individual genius moniker because it, it makes it seem like, A, that he's not part of a really bigger system of incentives around surveillance capitalism, as Shasana would, would, would put it. Um, actually, he's been the poster child of that, but it's, there's a whole kind of interconnected web of investor expectations of, you know, regulatory gaps and opportunities for um, people to get rewarded for um, horrible uh, kind of extractive behaviour that has kept, you know, Facebook and, and Mark in, in, in power. I agree with Sam. I, I really don't think that we should be... Um, continuing the the idea of of Cheryl as the 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 adult in the room as it used to be put um but I do feel unfortunately that um after her departure um I think Mark will will try and distinguish the era and it's what he wrote in his farewell letter um I think he will make um Meta and and Facebook more automated less concerned about stakeholders less concerned about image and and drive a bit more of a wedge um, between the critics and advocates that have been desperately trying to, and, and some of my colleagues who, who went and worked for, for Meta in the, in the AI ethics area, um, I think that's going to be um, more problematic and harder to, to make change. So for all of us, I think it's, it, is, it is a bit of, of, of a task of actually attacking more the system rather than pointing the finger at, at Cheryl and Mark and others at the top. 
That doesn't mean we should let them off the hook, though. Definitely right? not. Definitely <laughs> not. I just don't. I think that the evil genius narrative buys into if only they left, if only Mark left Meta, it would be better off. And I just don't think that's the answer. Yeah, anyway, just someone just as awful. Yeah. <laughs> the burning platforms crew thinks she's an evil genius. Eighty-one to nineteen, according to um, the votes. So not everyone's voted, but if other people want to throw it in, it'll be open later on as well. So look, let's talk a little bit about what Nick and I are trying to build with civility. And you guys are almost like our little focus group of how we can make these events work better. And I realize it's not about doing necessarily clunky Mentimeters, but maybe if I can give you a bit of context of the thinking and then we can have a bit of a discussion and then we're gonna ask for a bit of audience feedback um, through the Mentimeter a bit later. So. As you guys know, I've been spending a lot of time thinking through how we can create alternate public spaces from the ones that are controlled by Facebook and Twitter, which are all algorithmically designed to amplify anger and division to deliver a commercial return for the people running the platform, which is just what we've been talking about with the work of um, Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. So imagine if you could create spaces that didn't play by those rules that played by rules to promote the public interest. And that sounds all big and grandiose. And the original proposition in the Public Square project, which we put out at the end of last year, which Nick wrote a chapter in, as did Lizzie, was that we should imagine something akin to a public broadcaster that operates in the public interest, um, but not through government. And I still think that's an endpoint that we need public digital spaces for our civic engagement. But I guess the problem at the moment is that's a big debating point rather than anything real. So if you start the other way around, what can we do now, which is actually to make digital spaces more open and engaging and create experiences that work for people. So that's the starting point. And then it was, how do we take the disruption of the pandemic that got us all using these tools where we're sitting on a Zoom, but I feel like I'm sitting next to you, Sam, because you're on the main screen at the moment and David and Nick and all the other guys with their cameras on, which feels to me a little bit like it's not the metaverse. We're not in virtual reality, but we are, we're not just watching something. We're in a shared space. So can we create ways of making people feel more connected and more collaborative online? And that's where using some of these Menti tools come in. So there's a bit of a tech response. There's a long-term vision. And the bit in between, which I'll get Nick to explain because he's better than me. Imagine if we run lots of these events in lots of different forums like town hall events, but there was a way we can capture insights that can then build our understanding. The, the, the screen I forgot to put up at the start, which we've been doing in a lot of these that we've been piloting is just how are you feeling? And you get lots of people giving their, their, their how, how they feel in three words. You, sh- you display it back to the room as a word cloud, but that almost becomes like a, a temperature check for the room at the start of a discussion. If you did, if, if you started modularizing some of the ways that you get people to engage in these um, environments, we might end up with a way of building on each event so it becomes something that connects it all together. I've totally garbled that explanation, Nick, but you did it better than me the other night when we launched it in Old Parliament House. So how would you describe what we're doing? Yeah, look, I, I just think 
part of the challenge that I keep on seeing is that we have amazing conversations like this with incredible thinkers and sensitive, nuanced insights from, from people like David and, and, and Sam and all of you when we, when we open up for, for kind of that chat. And, and the, the challenge that we have is that they keep on kind of a little bit Groundhog Day um, small incremental shifts in how we piece together that insight and and move both both as you know people who have power in the organisations we work with or you know in families or in communities, um, particularly when we're talking to civil society leaders or a new government. Right, there's real power that that can pick up and move on on these issues, um, but also just in terms of like how we are having a collective conversation about important issues. Um, and I, as you said, Pete, when those uh, important conversations are, are driven and, and managed and, and morphed and, and distorted by kind of rent-seeking platforms, as I think of them. Um, it's a little bit challenging. Um, and we're not trying to create the next Facebook or anything of the sort. We're actually try- just trying to hack together the elements of a bunch of spaces where we can have ongoing continued conversations, where when you do a, a series of temperature checks about how people feel on a series of roundtables about the NDIS, that that means something and adds up to some insight and some data on a particular um, uh, policy proposal or a set of concerns that the community might have about what's happening today. And to make that work, first of all, we need great engagement tools. So we can, and this is not about creating them, this is about leveraging what's out there. So civility at the moment, powered by Mintimeter tools for the input side, could be anything tomorrow, doesn't really matter. What matters is the method and the process in our connection to it and your willingness to engage with it. Um, Then the second piece is there's so much trapped data out there. Every civil society organisation I've I've worked with and I've worked with many because I was responsible for that group at the World Economic Forum, um, they do heaps of quantum qual research and they're pulling out amazing insights all the time and 99.9% of that is trapped in PDFs and Excel spreadsheets that never see the the light of day again. Not all of it is valuable, but there are nuggets in there that we can pull to keep the the conversation building and becoming more nuanced and interesting um, over time. And the third is really just about public um, engagement and public sensing and having better um, public conversations. Uh, And all of us are doing that. All of us are reaching and, and, um, and trying to understand and sense make. So being able to bring those um, three aspects together, I think is uh, a really important uh, at least it's a goal for all of us. And if, if Pete and I and, and all of you can make one little step by link, make, linking together dashboards and input tools and, and databases in a way that, that, that helps, um, even a 5% improvement in this area would frankly be an incredibly significant step forward. Um, so yeah, that's what we're, we're trying to do, make, make lives easier for people running these conversations, make things easier and more interactive for those of you participating in them and then making it more impactful for the decision makers and those in power who can actually do something about this and shift a policy. So to state it another way, we've got a set of tools which we just hack together from what's out there. Then we've got this idea of trying to share knowledge, so to create almost this renewable base of insights that can drive the next collaboration. And at the end point, to drag people into the ecosystem, great events like burning platforms or an environment version or an Indigenous version or a disability or a political, like I do with Murph, with The Guardian. So we start normalising these ideas of having 
big noisy public town hall events that are either virtual face-to-face or hybrid but they're all feeding the one engine so i don't know if that i'm really interested in people's feedback and we've opened up if you go through back into the mentee and you want to make comments or questions we can go through it but i guess i'll throw to sam and david does that sound totally crazy or does it make vague sense what we're trying to do one thing i'd say quickly is like it just made me think of the election and how people haven't felt heard and I think we saw that with the the shift towards teals and independence and less so the um extremist right-wing parties but you know the the main parties being down to their sort of lowest primary votes shows a frustration there and I think this sounds like an effort towards empowerment of, of people being able to feel like they're having input into the political debate and helping move things forward so and, and it's interesting it comes at a time where social media obviously I think is trying to democratise the conversation but failing where it just ends up people shouting at each other and a bunch of toxicity where, you know, its intended purpose is a noble one of, of helping people have a voice, but it's just not working. So I think this feels like an attempt to actually do things in an adult and thoughtful way. Um, so I applaud that, absolutely. It sounds like, yeah. you know, all cards are here. We're kind of selling a vibe at the moment, Sam, but you're with the vibe, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, I look, it sounds like you were trying to sort of, there's a lot of moving parts in that by the sounds of it. So I admire the ambition. And I do think that we, we need some, some, some ambitious um, thought in, in this space. Like, I feel like it's very easy. This idea of like capitalist realism where you can't like even imagine an alternative, like that is such a pervasive experience for so many people. So I think that it's really important to like challenge that and to be you know, trying to come up with um, alternative ideas and structures. So I definitely, I applaud that and I look forward to seeing how it goes. I do have two questions for you. Yeah, go for it. My first one being, um, you mentioned before that you plan on having people log in, right? When we were talking about anonymity. I'm curious if you feel like if that will impact people's willingness to be like forthright and frank with their their opinions and their feelings. Have you given much thought to that? Yeah, I I the thinking I've got is that, um, well, there's two points. When you turn up to one of these events, you really it doesn't really matter what you call yourself, you are who you are. So particularly when it's a virtual event, like you could put an avatar or you could pretend to be someone other than Sam. But I don't think that's the point because the norms of this, the rules and the norms of this group are really interesting. And someone's just asked me what would be the chat rules and moderators. Well, the community chooses the rules that suit themselves. And I think... This community has been interesting because our good friend Amy Denmead always says, you guys have learned how to disagree so well and take it somewhere. And I suspect if all Lizzie and I had ever done was engage in Twitter, we'd absolutely troll each other. But instead (laughs) of that, we've got to know each other and we've had exchanges, which at least has expanded my mind. I'm not sure about hers. But but you know what I mean? So the idea of though having a civic space, for instance, if we were doing this for... Next Wednesday, Thursday night, we're going to run this platform for the Inner West Council who are doing a forum on the voice to parliament, which will be online and offline. But part of the idea there is that you will register to attend as a citizen. Now, does that stop people engaging in their full way? I'm not sure. But I do know that if you just go into an area like that totally anonymously, I I don't think it improves the quality of that conversation. So I just yeah, say, no. I think I think Peter and I disagree on this a little bit. So I think, Sam, no. we're not settled. Uh, we're not settled on that final aspect because it's horses for courses. The one thing that we will say is we're not 
intending to capture any identity data collect like attached to anyone's views that's that's not the point of this like this is about it's about the vibe and it's about understanding how that vibe shifts it's not about tracking individual views or having that demographic stuff done so i think that's really important and maybe i'll just give a quick example on this um so foundation for young australia like supported by body shop and donkey wheel trust and others have got this collective imagining project they've got 50 young people being trained around Australia to run youth workshops with 10 to 20 young people each. The idea is that they're magnifying that really great effort to reach about a thousand people per workshop in terms of the, the ongoing knock-on. Um, and the creativity of the young people being trained and doing those workshops is, is incredible and it's beautiful. And, and FYA is going to create a real stir from those workshops and, and produce a beautiful report and some great insights for others. Our imagining is let's do that. 500 times or a thousand times across Australia, still paying young people 500 bucks a pop to host their own workshop. Um, but let's find a way to kind of collectively like crowd in some of those insights into just a really replicable and totally open and shareable platform. And it doesn't matter what platform we use. It could be console. It could be anything. I just don't want it to be a Facebook or a Twitter or somewhere where it's where the, the value of that can be extracted and used and dominated by others i, I want it to be a, a really safe space and and i don't care about logins i just care that people are authentic that's all that matters um but i think we can get to that scale and engagement that as david said like people will feel like they're heard if then the government is saying look we've looked at this data and we can see the vibe and we're, we're hearing you we're repeating it back or your local member or a civil society organization or just your parents so I, I think that's that's where I think the, the value is is here. It's a little bit more interoperability than it is anything um, specific on the tech side. But Sam, you're right. Like it's a, it's about having a vision enough to actually get get some people to work together on this because otherwise we just keep having conversations on our own and doing great work that doesn't get shared apart from a press release or a single tweet. The other thing was launching it. We launched it down at the um, Centre for Australian Progress Leadership Conference, which was held in Old Parliament House earlier this week, which is this, this thing they do after each federal election. It was really interesting that every message coming through was collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. That's the way that civil society is going to work with government to do things better rather than campaigning, government campaigning with government. So, and we use the tools at that event as well. And all this does is take what is often a transactional interaction, whether it's a webinar or a conference, and really just starts giving that sense that it can be more porous and working two ways. So we should also talk about our terrible tortured metaphor of the um, whale and the dolphin to explain the logo, maybe, Nick, but that went down in the middle of drinks um, in Old Parliament House, um, as you would have expected. I, was, I just made this point, a metaphor that a guy called Michael Manis, a friend of mine, pointed out to me a few years ago, um, talking a lot in the context of conservation, et cetera, um, his point was that that um, a lot of a lot of institutions, big institutions, big platforms, seem a lot like whales. Um, but I don't know if you guys have had a, know, know much about this. But there's a concept called whale fall. Whale fall. Um, you can wave at the camera if you've ever heard about whale fall. Um, but basically, it's the fact that when a large whale dies, like one of the really really um, uh, big species, they don't die in shallow water. They don't beach themselves. They, they die out in the middle of the ocean and, and they actually very slowly sink over the course of um, months and sometimes years to the bottom of the ocean. Um, what's fascinating about this otherwise complete tangent into marine biology and dead whales is that when a whale dies, the activity around them increases. It goes up. Um, and if you step back 
you know, a couple of hundred meters, it's, there's more life and more activity going on when uh, a large whale um, has stopped moving under its own volition than when it's actually part of that big whale pump ecosystem of a, of a, of a conscious being. And the argument goes that a lot of our institu institutions are no longer alive. There's just a lot of activity going on around them that is extractive. There's not really the ideas driving us forward as a community. There's not really a really well-functioning ecosystem. And there are actually now about as many dead whales in the ocean offering uh, platforms for life as there, were, as there are live whales. So if you flipped a coin, any particular site of activity of a large institution in Australia is likely to be just being torn, about by, torn apart by consultants and, and, and lawyers or being used by you know, um, industry to extract uh, value as they are having, being able to create the, the purpose. Um, so we basically use this metaphor by saying, we don't want to be whales. None of us want to be whales. We want to adopt a bit of a different mindset focused on collaboration, fun, creativity, generativity. And really that's where the dolphin image comes in. Uh, we can work together, hunt together, play together um, and, and create a lot more value. But in order to do that, we're not solitary creatures accumulating assets in the middle of the ocean. Um, we're much more interdependent organisations that can communicate, share much better. I think for all the crappiness, the fever dream of the tech revolution and disruption that we're in right now, where I, I despair every day of the impact this is happening on, even on my own brain attention, um, I still think that, that using and leveraging better tools um, is one way forward. And that's where I think we've landed. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Before, before I know we're coming yeah. to time. I'm just curious about your sort of thinking behind the name civility. I feel like the term civility has like is kind of a bit loaded and has comes with some some connotations. And I'm I'm just curious about your sort of thinking behind that. Can I before before Pete answers because he, he he loves the word civility. Sam, what are the connotations that you take away from it? So I mean, to me, it kind of it brings up some feelings around respectability politics and how for a lot of people this idea of civility or having yeah being being civil in their in their in their um debate can be kind of challenging if you if you are coming from a position where you're not able to be necessarily civil when it comes to you know your if you're a, a marginalized or an oppressed group I yeah that's that's kind of my sort of gut reaction a little bit thanks um I'd always thought it was just a play on words for civil society and then also keeping it nice. But I know, I, I hear what you're saying. For marginalised people, it's not nice. But I think the bigger problem for me on the web at the moment is no one's nice. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we are getting up to the, um, the hour. I know that wasn't a normal burning platforms and thanks for indulging us. But we're going to keep using these tools and we're interested in people's feedback on better ways to use it. Um, before we finish off, we always check, is there anything coming up with Digital Rights Watch that people need to know about for the next couple of weeks, Sam? Yeah, I mean, we're about to launch um, a fundraising appeal. Um, our work is, really relies on support from um, our supporters, from, from donations. We're really hoping to get some more regular donors up. Um, donations help us to remain independent. It means you don't have to take money from um questionable <laughs> funders um so i would encourage people to look out for that if you're not on our mailing list already please do sign up so you get to see it we've got some exciting things coming out but yeah uh donations really really help support our work and to keep fighting for digital rights so please consider donating terrific and i just note that um mateo has just put a 
an abstract of an article um, that has been published in Cambridge Uni Press that um, is in the chat as well, which I look forward to reading. David, you are putting together the 100 um, top tech bros in Australia at the moment. Have we cracked it? Nearly there. I've got um, my deadline is 5pm today to get this thing done. Um, it's going to be a big, big magazine out in early August um, in the Australian. Um, so I'll be able to relax and have uh, several beverages after 5pm today once that magazine copy is done. Um, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And um, if you have any good investigative stories that I need to look into, then please slide into my DMs uh, anonymously or otherwise. Good on you, mate. And finally, Nick, um, tell us a little bit in the couple of minutes we've got left about the exciting project you're working on. Yeah, so Ed Santo, former Human Rights Commissioner, and I um, just launching a new institute at UTS, the Human Technology Institute. Part of that is, is a big model law project on facial recognition technology in Australia. Uh, just like uh, Dave asked, uh, if, if you work with FRT, if you have been affected by it, if you've got some strong views on it, and I know Sam, you and the team do, um, would love to uh, engage with you just to keep pulling that together because it's not a cl classic consultation project. It's about putting hypotheses for legal options to stakeholders and then building it together to make sure we get to the best outcome for the Australian public we can from a rights-based perspective. So I would, would love views on that. And then also, secondly, with my Peter and Nick and civility hat on, obviously, like, all um, constructive or um, uncivil, <laughs> constructive or uncivil provocations, challenges, thoughts, uh, requests, etc., would be really useful. Because again, this is not for anyone, but for you guys, like for all of us, to be able to um, just keep building these kind of great conversations and and have everyone heard in ways that make a big difference. So, really appreciate you all being part of this platform. Yeah, I'll second that. And thanks, guys. Thanks for being back. We'll. We'll keep this going fortnightly. Um, I think Dan's back in a fortnight, but who knows? And I think Lizzie will be off for a few months. So we might be seeing a bit more of you, Sam, but thank you very much for coming in today. And it's been great having you as part of the team. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on June 10. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Holly Forrest. Talk again in a fortnight.